0: Um, So, are we good to get started?
1: Let me settle my body. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it.
0: Freaks. It's your host, Christina. This week, I got to talk to Alyssa Keegan, who is a life and relationship coach specializing in working with people who are exploring polyamory or consensual non-monogamy. They are also a professional actor, a partner, and a parent. So I'm really excited for you to hear our conversation. Just so you know, this episode deals with some pretty heavy topics. They include infidelity, homophobia, transphobia, and sexual trauma. There's nothing too graphic, but I did want to give you a heads up in case those things really harm you. Maybe skip this episode. All right. Enjoy our conversation. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Christina. Um, will you go ahead and introduce yourself for our audience?
1: Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Alyssa Keegan. I am a trauma-informed whole person life and relationship coach specializing in people who are new to, curious about, or struggling with open relationships and ethical non-monogamy polyamory. I am also a professional actor in the D.C. and New York area.
0: Fantastic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into your field of work?
1: Yeah. Uh, we're talking specifically the coaching.
0: I sure. Assume. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the the acting would be a much longer uh,
0: story. <laughs> Although I'd be um, so glad to hear that, too, from a personal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that'll be a totally other podcast. Yes. Um, yeah. I had an interest in... Uh, coaching for a very long time. I always told myself that if I ever stopped being an actor, I, I would always want to go into a field like psychology, therapy, coaching. And right before the pandemic, I had really started to investigate creating a secondary business, having my acting career be my primary focus, and then having a sweet side gig of uh, life and relationship coaching specifically focused on um, open relationships, consensual Mm non-monogamy. And I was interested in that because when I came to my own journey of polyamory, I didn't have a lot of resources. There were some books, um, but I felt very much like I was blazing my own path with with my partner, with my partners. And I wanted to be an advocate and resource for the community. And mm-hmm. um, so it was kind of a small-ish, creative, brainstorming thing up until the pandemic. And then, as you know, uh, anybody who is in the service industry and entertainment business industry uh, became more or less 100% unemployed. Yeah. And I was living up in New York at the time and was sheltering in place and trying to figure out how I wanted to move forward. And without knowing what this was, how long it was going to last, I decided to uh, delve into my other passions. And um, I also wrote a couple of children's books during that time, but and I primarily...
0: they're amazing.
1: Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I can send you links if anybody's curious about um, my, my children's books based on the pandemic and, and hanging out with my kid. <laughs> um, but I, I started really promoting myself as a coach or as somebody who is interested in pursuing it, but I hadn't had an education really at that point. And then I was posting on Instagram, and... Ooh.
0: Well, part of that audio got lost. I think our internet cut out. But basically, you just missed 30 seconds of Alyssa saying she found a really awesome group called Fresh Path New York, and then she goes on to talk about how she got a job with them
1: investigated them, and they are this incredible collection of therapists that do telehealth, but they're based out of New York. And they focus specifically on um, clients uh, who are BIPOC, LGBTQIA+, um, polyamorous, basically anyone who identifies or is living in alternative lifestyle um they are the therapists for you and they advocate for people of color like really powerfully and i just realized that that was exactly the organization that i wanted to be a part of mm-hmm. and i was downstairs in my sister's basement um Cause I had been potting with her, with my son and my niece who were both in first grade. So as a way for them to socialize, we had kind of moved in with them for a period of time. So I was just downstairs in my basement and I just decided I was a glass of wine in and I'm just going to write these people and say, Hey, I'm amazing. I'm at the beginning of this idea, but I think you should hire me. <laughs> yes. <I laughs> and that. yeah. And, um, I was convincing enough that I got an interview, and they did. They hired me and um, h- helped me pave the way to where I am now. They um, they supported me um, personally, professionally, and financially in some of my education. Mm. Um, I've had the great honor to work alongside some really incredible individuals and learn from them, and as somebody who is just starting out, uh, as a coach, it was also really informative to get, um, a definition and a foundation of how coaching is different from therapy.
0: Mm. Um, okay. So I personally don't fully understand how coaching is different than therapy. Would you mind giving me like a quick primer? So happy to. Thank you. So
1: m- most of us are are familiar with therapy and that uh, or ideas or stereotypes of what therapy is. Mm -hmm. Um, but primarily therapy operates from the present moment and things in the past that have caused you to be and engage where you are in the present moment. So there's a lot of reflection back to the past. There's a lot of healing. There's a lot of facing of trauma or uncovering of trauma. Um, in order to heal the present moment. Coaching mm-hmm. kind of takes it from the present moment forward. It's not that we can't delve into the past, but a, a, a client who's really ready for coaching is somebody who knows what most of their triggers and traumas have been in their life, have done some work on it. It's not that those things go away, they're a part of us, but that they are more or less aware of those triggers and traumas and are able to move with them in a forward way. And so really what a coach does is they resource the individual so that they can attain their desires, create action plans. And what I have found uh, in my work with, with people is that a lot of it is uh, does go back to, like, present moment, reestablishing a relationship with yourself mm. and how you want to move forward in your life with agency and awareness um, rather than I want to go do this, you know, really tangible goal, say I want to write a book. But maybe you find out that the blocks to writing that book relate back to your sense of worthiness. Mm. Um, and so as a whole person coach, really, I'm taking into consideration every aspect of the human experience, the emotional, um, the mental, the psychological, the social, the spiritual, if that is part of you, um, all in an effort to create forward momentum
0: in where you want to go. Hmm. That's really beautiful. Um Are there any types of therapy that kind of infuse a more coaching mindset? Do you know? Is that common? I mean, I think that
1: there's a lot of overlap.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I don't personally have information on specific modalities of therapy that would involve um, styles of coaching. But I do know that that even though therapy does – work a lot in the past to the present, they still create, you know, forward momentum for their clients as well. Yeah. Um, it's just... That's just
0: a good therapist. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I don't know. I'd have to do some investigation on that.
0: Okay. Cool. Thank you for, yeah. for telling me about that. Um, so moving on now, what do you envision for your... I guess, I don't know, would you call it a practice if it's not therapy? Yeah, you can still call it a practice. Yeah, my coaching practice. Your coaching practice. What do you envision for your coaching practice moving forward?
1: A lot of things. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, as I said, I am a trauma-informed coach, um, Mm -hmm. and I'm currently – in a course seeking certification in somatic attachment therapy. Mm. Um, I'm very excited about attachment theory and, uh, and I could go into some basics of that too, but that would be a a whole other podcast as well. (laughs) Um, But the idea of where we hold trauma and being able to understand Um, somatically, which means basically within our body, body awareness, Mm -hmm. Um, trying to actually gain more access and more information about why we get triggered by certain moments, certain people, why we feel safe in certain environments around certain people, and not just trying to intellectualize our way through it, but to actually tap into the rest of the nervous system to help us gain awareness about ourselves and how we move through the world and engage with other people.
0: And that sounds like acting. Yeah, it really, it,
1: it really is. And, and um, I also have some brainstorming things about how I would like to blend, um, you know, coaching and somatic awareness and fight flight freeze and and just body yeah. consciousness into say um the rehearsal spaces or acting programs i'm
0: yes. i'm at the
1: beginning of like you know creating maybe my own modality um
0: that's amazing yeah what you're saying it like immediately made me think of viewpoints and alexander technique and absolutely. like some link later I don't know. Like that's the biggest thing that I think I gained from going to acting school myself is like the ability to hold space for my trauma. And I think I didn't even learn that I learned that until after I left.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting the way that you say that, that you weren't even sure that you learned it until you left. Because from my perspective, when I was learning all of those same techniques, it was very informative to my body experience, but it Mm -hmm. wasn't couched in any way in my, uh, awareness of my neurobiology or my nervous system. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what I find really fascinating as a, as a coach who has this Um, kind of growing education that I want to impart to my clients, particularly in relation to themselves and then their relationships. And when you're talking about polyamory and consensual Mm -hmm. monogamy, multiple relationships um, is really just how the brain works Mm. and how that informs the nervous system. And I think combining that with somatic awareness is really the golden nugget. And I think a lot of what I learned in my master's program and my acting program was body awareness, but without an awareness of what's happening neurobiologically and why I, why I can access my body in a certain way or what's happening with the combination of the brain and the nervous system. And I right. think that, that that's – I get super nerdy about that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. I get super nerdy about things that I'm passionate about too, so – I appreciate it. Um, (laughs) Would you mind talking a little bit more? You already started mentioning polyamory. Just maybe your personal journey with consensual non-monogamy and how that ties into your practice.
1: Yeah. So I began my official poly journey about six years ago that right yeah about six years ago and I was in a place in my life um, I'm legally married Mm -hmm. and I was in a place in my life with my um, then husband now I call him my partner um, where we were just recovering from a really public affair And, Mm -hmm. um, and we had been moving through it and had sought our own therapists and, and couples therapy as well. And had gotten to a place where we just really started acknowledging our authentic selves with each other, which we didn't really do when we got married. Um, we had very traditional and romantic ideas about what marriage was and, didn't consider so many things that, that I think is pretty typical um, actually of of people who um, get married. You don't really realize all the things you don't know until, until you're there. Um, But we were having really blunt and productive conversations about our desires Mm -hmm. and about wanting to actually keep each other safe. And, Around that time, I was in a show, and I met this incredible woman, (laughs) and I just immediately fell in love. Aww. And, (laughs) um, And I was in a place with my marital partner where I decided that I could talk to him about this. And I did, and um, I think at the time he, or even now, he may he would say that that part of the reason why he said, "Hey, go explore that," was um, maybe a sense of wanting to balance the scales uh, in our you know previous ruptures. But for whatever his reasons were, he said, "I can't offer you." That, I'm. A, I'm. You know, he's a cis hetero man, mm-hmm. and so I went and explored that, and she and I fell very quickly in love, and it was very fun and exciting, and although my marital partner was very happy for me at first, um, it was apparent pretty quickly that. There was uh, a growing insecurity and jealousy and stress that was being put on my marriage because I was having this external relationship, mm. and I hadn't even heard the term polyamory. Um, but one night, I we were all hanging out, and they were very close. They had they were friends. Oh. Um, uh, you know, they knew each other and they got on very, very well. And, and this woman, although uh, they identify as a lesbian, um, did say that they sometimes vacationed in hetero world. Oh. And so I proposed that we all be together. Okay. And I didn't know what that looked like, but what I knew... What I kind of have always felt and definitely know now that I identify as poly. It is not a lifestyle for me, although it can be for some people. For me, it's an identity. I just Mm. knew I wanted all the people that I love in one place. Yeah. So um, they both agreed. And we spent uh, a year and a half as a triad. Um, And that was very eye-opening, and probably the greatest uh, amount of personal growth that I had ever gone through to that point. Um, it was a beautiful, exciting, fraught, complicated, sexually liberating time. And um, and when that relationship... Um, transitioned, uh, we began, you know, the extension of our poly journey, like after that into, um, what is now, you know, metamores and, um, you know, my marital partner has a partner. I have a partner. Um, my partner has a partner. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, but it all started, it all started with that special lady.
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, so you mentioned now you have metamors. I know what that means. I am assuming a lot of people don't know what that means. Can you just quickly say?
1: <laughs> sure. So uh, a metamore is a term in um, the consensual non-monogamy, polyamory communities um, for a person that you are in relation to but not romantically or sexually involved with. So, um, my marital partner has a partner and she is my metamor and I am her metamor. So, um, yeah, metamors are basically like people who share a partner, but are not romantically or sexually involved personally.
0: Awesome. Or, Thank or you typically, so much. I suppose. And they make you meatballs. Be... And they made me, me, yeah, well, I
1: don't know if she made me meatballs, but I definitely took advantage of the meatballs that she left in my fridge. Amazing. <laughs> She's a really good cook.
0: Oh, okay, gotta, gotta hit her up and be like, hey, let's cook together, because <laughs> I'm down to cook. Um, uh, gotta love that person. Okay, so, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um. How do you and your marital partner, since obviously you've been in a relationship with him longer, how do you balance um, your life as partners to each other, to other people, as as parents to your child?
1: Wow, that's a, like a three-parter. I know.
0: Um... You can choose to address <laughs> any part you want or none at all.
1: Yeah, so as far as my balance with with my, with my marital partner, um, that's been a really, uh, evolving relationship. When we began, uh, our journey, we were very hierarchical. We had a lot of couples privilege. Mm
0: -hmm. We had a
1: lot of rules in place. Um, I think because of the past trauma of infidelity, there was a lot of fear about how we do this, and there was a lot of jealousy and um, possessiveness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, over the years, we have worked justly on couple. We um, stopped wearing our wedding bands years ago. Um, we have them tucked away, but they don't represent our relationship. We no longer refer to each other as husband and wife. Um, because that didn't feel inclusive to the people that we were falling in love with and validating.
0: And when did you decide to stop doing that? Um, probably about two years in Mm -hmm. probably, it was really, I think that it
1: was around the time that we ended our triad because I think one of the things that was difficult about the triad was that we were all new to polyamory. We were all trying to figure it out, and my marital partner and I really did have a hierarchy and um, a lot of couples' privilege, and our Mm. partner reinforced that. Um, She wanted our marriage to be the most important thing, Um, but as time went on, that structure was too rigid for all of us. And right. it caused a lot of pain and heartache. And the more I educated myself, um, the more unfair I realized that structure was um, to everyone involved, but particularly to um, to those outside of the the legal relationship.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, some
1: people call those relationships secondary, but I I do. I've kind of abandoned an idea of hierarchy because I feel like, um, it doesn't quite work in my world anymore, but it's it's valid for some people. I hate power structures. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we stopped, uh, wearing the rings. We stopped identifying ourselves as husband and wife, mostly, Um, There are occasions where using the term husband or wife is like a shorthand if we're in an environment um, that would quickly call for it. Mm. Um, I was recently in a car accident uh, just uh, a week ago today, actually, and both of my partners were close by and um, my my non-marital partner arrived first and then my marital partner arrived and the cops in the fire department already saw this man with me and was like, who's this guy? And he was like, I'm her husband, you know, but it was like the first time that I had heard him say that in, in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's, there's exceptions to that because social structures are still unfamiliar with. Um,
0: right. I, I don't think I knew that you didn't call each other husband and wife, but I'm just careful to do that because I know you're not binary. So I don't know if you would even identify yeah. with a more gendered term like that. Yeah. I mean, that's,
1: I'm, I, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about, um, to talk about that part of it because that's actually a, a newer conversation in our dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll put a pin in that. Okay. Um, we, um, during the pandemic, we realized also that we just had a really hard time sharing a space. And so we also now have separate bedrooms, which is really liberating and beautiful. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I've created balance with that particular relationship. Um within all of those things that helped balance out my other relationships outside of the legal relationship Mm. because it afforded those other relationships, more agency, more ability to feel, um, as valued as important. Um, and when it comes to our kid, uh, he's never known us as anything except open and poly. Mm. He was, I think just two years old when we started becoming a triad. And um, so he just knows all of our partners as, as family. Um, Mm -hmm. We're very careful to not introduce him to partners that are more casual. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Or, or if, if he does meet them, it is in a, Hey, this is my friend and they're not staying over. Um, Right. I mean, there's there's um, very specific um, ways in which we uh, share our life openly with him um, and ways in which we establish um, some boundaries um, so that um, everybody's safe.
0: Good. Boundaries are the best. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Love boundaries. Um, speaking of boundaries, I know you touched on this a little bit with, with that woman who kind of helped you fall into, I guess, I guess yeah, fall into non-binary, or er, not non-binary, excuse me, polyamory. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do if you ever feel jealous or envious of a partner?
1: Hmm. You know, I, like I said, I've been, I've been in this structure and it's not even a structure. It's, it's an organism. Um, I've been living in this organism of consensual non-monogamy for a while. And so my relationship to jealousy has changed a lot and it's not that jealousy doesn't Occur because it does, but what I understand about jealousy now, um, from repeat patterns in my own experience is that I am often jealous when I am insecure about myself, Mm -hmm. and I have learned over the years that, um, when I am sensing jealousy, it is um, more likely an issue that I have to manage with saying, okay, well, why do you feel unworthy? Why do you feel less than? Why why are you comparing yourself? Um, now, if my needs are not being met, if I am being um, if my needs or my boundaries are being ignored, that is a reason to, to say like, oh, this jealousy is a flag telling me something's not working in my relationship,
0: mm-hmm. but,
1: but there has to be a deep, deep, deep sense of awareness and responsibility to understanding the difference mm. and I think that that is what I anchor myself to when I am feeling jealous. I, like I said, I'm very, very into mindfulness and body awareness, and I often feel jealousy deeply in my body.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, uh, and so I'm, I'm able to hopefully regulate myself enough to sit with it and say, okay, is this about you or is this about something that you're not getting mm. Mm. and, um, and I'm not always perfect at it and I make mistakes and I have not always been my best self.
0: And well, I think that's like, it too. it's so beautiful that you can acknowledge that. Because yeah. that's that's hard.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's brutal.
0: <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo was right. God, it's brutal out here. Um, do people ever consider you to be overly promiscuous and question your role as a parent? I've been very
1: fortunate in that regard. Um, it is a very important thing to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've always lived on the East Coast and, um, I'm, I'm, I'm only suggesting that there, uh, there are a lot of big cities with a lot of diversity,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and a lot of alternative, uh, lifestyles and identities on the coasts. And so, um... I have – we've been really fortunate in that um, those who have figured it out – because we are out, but when it comes to our kid, we're more discreet. Right. Um, But we're not not hiding it. We're just not swinging from the chandeliers about it when it comes to
0: our child. Right. Um, Well, it's not like – okay, your kid is young your your kids shouldn't be sexualized or like involved in necessarily like knowing all of that like it's your private life
1: oh absolutely but you know even when it comes to you know teachers oh um, yeah yeah you know uh we have had parent teacher conferences with our partners all engaging and talking to the teacher about our son um we have had our partners pick up our son and are on the list to pick him up after school. Um, you know, and people don't ask questions. They might be confused. And if, if I, if I am shamed, I don't know about it. Mm. And, and I've never been confronted with anyone ever suggesting that I wasn't a good parent. Now that might also be because my kid is truly, one of the coolest individuals <laughs> I've ever known. He's well rounded and happy, and and I don't think gives off an air of um, of being in need. Mm. So yeah, I've been really We've all we've been all of us have been really fortunate in that I don't think we've encountered any discrimination in that regard.
0: Gotcha. Separate from being a parent, have you experienced any discrimination? Yeah yeah
1: <laughs> yeah um it's really hard
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: really really hard because people who already knew me uh, and um knew me before right um, and the discomfort with me no longer being um straight cis monogamous um which I never was, but just, um, you were presenting that way. I was presenting that way because none of those things felt wrong. They just weren't all of me. Mm -hmm. Um, those, there are some people in my life who, um, who abandoned me. Mm -hmm. Um, not many and not my family, My family has been very, very supportive, but there have been others, um, and it was really, really hard.
0: Yeah, I bet. Wow. I'm sorry that happened.
1: It's all a process.
0: It is, but it's still...
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I know that it's not about me. I know that it's about... For sure. Whatever their processing, whatever gets triggered in them by my identity, my lived experience,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: they're dysregulated by it, and they're threatened by it. And, yeah. Um, and that is not – that's not something I can ultimately control. Mm. So, so i, I got to let them – do their thing
0: yeah that's totally fair and honestly normalized friend breakups people think that it's like not a thing but or or even family breakups like that's that's setting boundaries right and sometimes you just need to do that um for your own peace yeah exactly um thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing that with me and the listeners as well sure what's your biggest tip for someone looking to explore polyamory or consensual non-monogamy
1: be prepared to do a lot of self-examination I think that a lot of people particularly people who are coming from monogamous structures and I definitely experienced this so this isn't me you know, speaking from a pulpit, uh, it is very alluring to think about being sexual and romantic consensually with other people.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, It's the consensual part that is really difficult. Yes. And um, we are taught, we live in a society that says cheating is the preferred method of non-monogamy. Yes. And that even if you don't want to live that way, there is there is this structure that you may not even be aware of that says don't talk. Don't divulge my true feelings. I'm going to hurt somebody if I do this. And it's it's just so easy to hide and get mm-hmm. your your quote unquote your needs met. And when you decide to be ethical, <laughs> you have to actually face your own insecurities, your own fears, your own inability to be assertive and talk and speak um, directly your own possessiveness it's very easy for me to be poly but i don't want my partner to be poly it's very easy for me to go and have all of this love and understand it, it makes all the sense in the world but my partner please don't be poly <laughs> you know and and really it's it's having to face yourself that is um, the real work of being consensual and ethically non monogamous. And I I think that um, if people went into the decision of opening up relationships, or opening from monogamy, even if you're solo, opening from monogamy to non monogamy, that it's really advanced relationship work. Mm -hmm. And um, one needs to be prepared to face their shortcomings. You know, um, Jessica Fern is um, a therapist and, and specializes in polyamory, and she's written an incredible book called Polysecure. But one of the things that she says in the book is that people who open up their relationships, great, solid, secure relationships, when they open them up, they, they're suddenly very insecure and they don't understand why. And um, the truth is that ethical non-monogamy can very quickly expose the um, insecurities that one may have felt but didn't notice because monogamy was keeping them secure. But Mm -hmm. the second you take off that band-aid of monogamy, all of their insecurities are suddenly exposed and all of the insecurities in the relationship are exposed, and the work of becoming securely attached with yourself, I think, is paramount to healthy, secure, consensual, ethical relationships in a broader capacity.
0: Here at Freakin' the Tweets, we believe in good vibes only... (laughs) No, not that toxic positivity bullshit. I mean good vibrators only. We love gender-affirming sex toys and paraphernalia here at Freakin' the Tweets. So you can head over to at shopnb, that's at... S H O P E N B Y on Instagram or Twitter, or shopnb.com to get 10% off by using the code LILYHOPE at checkout. That's L I L Y H O P E. Don't ask me why, that's the code. And enjoy your 10% off with your pleasure filled toys. Would you mind talking a little bit about discovering, or a lot, about discovering not only your polyamory or your polyamorous identity, um, but your queer identity as an adult?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I always knew I was a little bit gay. Um. (laughs) Just a little bit. Well, you know, like, and I think that for a time I was identifying as bi, but I think that, um, I don't think I limit myself to just, um, bisexuality. I think pansexuality, um, sexual sexuality, um, resonates with me more, but,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, you know, more attracted
0: to somebody's soul.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also girl bodies. And yeah. boy bodies, and 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 now all bodies that encompass gender nonconformity.
0: Yeah, um, and intersex people.
1: Right, exactly. But at the time when I was a kid, I was not exposed to any of that. I
0: right. was
1: living in the Midwest in a really conservative small farm community. Um, I lovingly dubbed myself the "dirty country kid" for many years, and still is a little <laughs> bit. Um, But I didn't have any um, examples set for me other than being a white, cis, monogamous person, straight person. And I, I remember so many times, like, trying to figure out how I could make out with my my friends, like if I slept over at their house and like never figuring it out and always being very, very afraid and never doing it, but just being so fascinated that I liked both and didn't know how to talk about it. And, um, you mean both, both men and both, both genders or sexes. And, and it was really limited to like Girls and boys. That's what it was right. when I was No, young. of
0: course. You know? Yeah.
1: Um, of course it wasn't. We know this. But my vocabulary and my awareness and understanding was boys, girls. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I have always been uh, a very athletic, um, muscular, tomboy kind of person. And... I struggled with my androgyny for a really long time again, because like being bisexual, being a a straight didn't feel wrong because that was part of my identity. It just wasn't all of my identity. Similarly, uh, presenting and identifying as female doesn't feel wrong. It's part of my identity. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just not all of my identity. And, um, and I think that I had a lot of body dysmorphia and body shame because yeah. I felt very masculine physically um, and presented as a very um, assertive person. And I, I was often told that I was intimidating. And and even in grad school, I had a teacher tell me that I um, – I use too much masculine power. Why don't I embrace my feminine power? Um, Which at the time I think was interesting and helped balance me back to some of my feminine energy that I probably didn't value as much because it didn't feel like I had power in that space. Um, Hmm. But I, again, it was during the pandemic when everything slowed down and I, I finally had room and time to sit with all of my dysfunction and um, insecurities and identity crisis that I um, started to come out as gender fluid, as non-binary and my sibling Um, I'm really thankful to say, is also gender fluid and also Mm. poly. So um, they and I have had a wonderful time being supportive of each other in this space. Um, I still misgender myself. Yeah. Constantly. I do too. Um,
0: (laughs) The biggest is if I'm like, because I'm such a fangirl, like, I don't know why I add the girl. But, like, yeah, I'm going to fangirl for my friend. I don't know. It's just a yeah, thing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's, it's a turn of phrase. And, there, yeah. and there's so many of – there's so many gendered turns of phrases and and mm-hmm. things that you don't even think about um, in the yeah. same way that you're like, what's up, guys, to a group yeah. of people oh that my may or may not all be, you know – Guys. Or okay with that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been a journey, but um, – and it's one that I – you know, when I started to embrace it, I, I was very confused and scared of it, because there was also a part of me that was like, I'm in the middle of my life. I'm just now coming out in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I, I know now that part of the reason why I did that was because it started to feel safer to do that. However, there was a part of me that felt like I, like I had imposter syndrome, like that I was doing this and trying to figure myself out or trying to be cool because now it's cool to be non-binary or something. I, I, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't, I didn't know. And, um, I mean, I did know. I knew that I was, but I think that I was still facing some fear about being accepted um, by my partners who both currently happen to be cis-hetero men.
0: Mm. Um,
1: And and also, like, I haven't had... um, any, like, a consistent um, feminine or AFAB energy, like, in my life, in a, in a bit, and so identifying from a they perspective, or a more masculine perspective, was something that I really needed. I really yeah. needed to, like, let that part out more, yeah. Um, and so it is in relation to my sexuality and my identity, and it's all kind of jumbled up in there still.
0: Mm. Yeah, I personally relate to that a lot. I mean, I also came out um, over the pandemic, but it's more where I guess it's similar to when I came out as bisexual, um, and I only came out out of necessity because I started dating a woman who's a lesbian, um, And everyone was like, oh, you're a lesbian now? And I'm like, no, I'm not anything now. I'm bisexual or pansexual, however you want to say it. Like, I'm attracted to all genders or multiple genders. Um, And coming out as non-binary was more me saying I reject these structures that are imposed on me. And Mm. so many people asked me, why can't you just be a woman who rejects those structures? And I said, well, I always have been. Like, I was a Girl Scout. I was in student government. I've always been, like, a badass leader. I have leadership skills. I'm not bossy, you know? Like, (laughs) I was that kid. And um, really being able to shed the label of woman or girl allowed me to um, connect with my androgyny and connect with my queer identity in a way that I didn't know I needed because um, kind of maybe like six months before the pandemic, I went through a really bad breakup with, with that first partner I mentioned. And that was like my first partner ever. Mm. Um So breaking up with her, I was like, well, how do I say I'm queer now? Like, how do I say I'm gay? Because I think so many of us, like, tie our whole identity to the first person we're with. Like, no matter what your sexuality is, like, that person becomes a part of you. And, like, it's incredibly painful to go through a breakup. And I kind of went through a breakup with myself. I was like, okay, I don't want to be this person anymore. I don't want to be like, I I wouldn't say that I was hyper feminine, um, but I don't want to be like America's sweetheart, Taylor Swift kind of person anymore. Um, And like, as an actor, that was huge, too. I don't know if has this changed how you approach acting your career that way at all? Uh, it's definitely a question that I
1: asked myself, you know, as uh, somebody who has made their most recent career out of being a leading lady.
0: Uh-huh. Um,
1: I, I wonder if identifying as gender nonconforming will change the decision makers in the room their their minds about me but I I can't I can't really live my life asking those questions I have to just walk into the space um and and do what I've always done um and you know I think that as a theater practitioner primarily I think that 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 the theater is still in flux, and mm-hmm. so I think that there's so many things that people are worrying about right now. For that sure. my gender identity is not on the top of their list,
0: <laughs> and that's fine. No, with me. <laughs> but yet yeah, no, but also yes, because I don't know. Um, I've gotten called in recently for several non-binary roles or roles where I would be playing multiple genders. And I never got those calls before. I told casting directors in DC that I'm non-binary and my pronouns are right at the top of my resume now because yeah. I'm trying to normalize that. And I actually had a conversation um with the casting director at Olmy Theatre Center, who I love dearly, um, and uh she had like 15 minute zoom auditions with local people who are a lot of us emerging artists um or recent grads because i haven't worked professionally since graduating in 2020 and that's like a huge blow to my ego but also what have what has there been to do so um She had these auditions, and she asked, like, are my pronouns on my resume? And I said, yeah, they are. I actually sent my non-binary friend, who was my freshman college roommate, um, this, like, kind of panicked voicemail. I was like, I don't, oh my gosh, what do I do? Do I do I have my resume? Do I have pronouns on my resume? Do you have pronouns on your resume? Is that weird? Like, are people going to automatically be like, okay, she doesn't want to play any women anymore? Like, they're going to look at my resume and be like, oh, she always plays moms. Why is she they she? And like... <laughs> um, Then my friend was like, yeah, I put my pronouns on my resume. It's fine. And I was like, okay, that's all you needed to say. Thank you. And um, then the casting director also asked me, like, do I put my ethnicity in my resume? And no one's ever asked me that. But I was kind of crying to her about people telling me I can't be Chinese or, like, obviously, I'm Irish. My last name is McCann. But I changed it when I was a kid. Like, I, I originally had the last name Tao T-A-O like the dynasty like the way um so or like the Americanized pronunciation of Dao, and like her asking me because they're legally not allowed to ask you these things like what is your sex what is your gender what is your ethnicity so her asking me like oh would you consider putting that on your resume so people can cast you more accurately and then the same person called me in for a non-binary trans role and um, told me, like, audition for this show without regards to gender or audition for this show where you're going to be playing multiple tracks. And I was like, wow, like, all you have to do is speak up. It's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting that you say that because I've actually played uh, I've played men a number of times. Mm. um, in shows. And I love it. Yeah. Love it's it. so
0: fun. They always and get the
1: best speeches and songs. I'm so good at it. Uh, yeah, and it just, it just feels so yummy and so at home for me. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me to, uh, put it on my resume yet, but you know, I, I am still re-emerging, right. um, as a, as an actor as a theater practitioner and um but that you this is some food for thought so thank you
0: yeah you're welcome sorry tangent I do that um it's my neurodivergency which I apologize for but I also don't (laughs) (laughs) um I, I have one last question for you, and you've kind of been touching on this, but I am doing a question of the week segment where I ask listeners to respond to a question that I asked in the previous week. So last week, I asked um, people how their relationship with sex, and if you would like to extend that to gender as well, you're welcome to, has changed over the pandemic. Um, really as like a reflection because I think that that's such a huge question. Um, yeah. But if you have any thoughts to respond to that, I would love to hear.
1: Well, I think I touched on the gender part of
0: mm-hmm.
1: sex. Um, the act of sex or the the, mm-hmm. the experience of sexuality and, and sexual intercourse or, or mm-hmm anything in that realm. It has changed a lot for me. Um, one, I, I think that my uh, expanding of self and abandoning fear of taboos uh, has led me to more deeply um, identify or face my submissive kinky self, Mm. which, um, I previously identified and still do as a switch.
0: Um, which is
1: (laughs) both has like a dominant and a submissive side, but I have not appreciated, um, or trusted my submissive self. Um, Mm. and so, uh, I don't feel like I don't feel safe to be the beloved. And, um, and so that's something that, has been really interesting and healing. And um, one of the, one of the most tremendous things that I did for myself in that regard was taking a pelvic embodiment class with, um, with a dear friend of mine, Niall McFarlane, who is an occupational therapist and uh, you can find their information. They're also non-binary and um, you can find their information uh, on Instagram, they, um, they have a practice called Blue Nile Therapy, and so you can find them at Blue Nile Therapy, and they taught this pelvic embodiment class for the month of January, and it just really opened my eyes to the trauma, the sexual trauma um, that I was holding on to, and in some cases was not fully aware of. And I think that um, that's really helped me define my, at least my penetrative relationships, um, because I think that, um, that I wasn't always um, fully consenting to those experiences, although I said that I was, Mm. or, you know, but I wasn't quite, right, and I just never knew how to express that, and so um, a lot of damage was done to me in that Mm. regard, and in a lot of it was, um, I'm not going to say my responsibility, but my lack of ability to speak outside of a social construct that said that if you are assigned female at birth, part of your job is to be penetrated. Right. Um, That was something that's been really eye-opening for me and has been very helpful in my um, growing and expanding um, sexuality and awareness and intimacy um, moving forward.
0: Hmm. One of the things you just said is, like, it's your role to be penetrated. Um, It's it's interesting to me, um, as somebody who is also AFAB, non-binary, uses they, she pronouns, um, and had only ever been with cis women, um, I actually, like, just had penetrative sex for the first time this year. So that was interesting. Liked it more than I thought I would. Um, <laughs> but I was also with a non-binary person. Um, and, it, okay, so what you said made me think of something that an author I love says. Um, she is a fab woman, um, and she's a linguist. Um, her name is Amanda Montell, And she wrote two books that I really like. One of them is cultish the language of fanaticism and the first one that she wrote is called word slut a feminist guide to taking back the english language Mm. and that came out like right before the pandemic and i found her on instagram one time um and immediately followed because she was doing this um really cool series um called like world word slut university or something like that and um she talked one time during a live about Um, how we talk about penetration and sex and just like default male language in general. And Mm -hmm. she said, wouldn't it be so powerful if we talked about the act of penetration as envelopment instead? And that like blew my mind. I mean, I know it's the same thing, but just like framing it from the woman's perspective or the female perspective, or AFAB perspective, um, or like intersex person who has a vagina. Like, I, I don't know that it needs to be that deep. But just thinking about how I use words to talk about sex and gender is been extremely transformative for me. So thank you for talking about that.
1: Thank you for introducing me to envelop. I think yeah. it's import- I think it's important for my healing to have faced the word penetrate. Yeah. Um, but I think moving forward, envelop is like gorgeous. It's and I beautiful. love, I mean, like, don't like, get me wrong. I love something. being enveloped. I love yeah. being enveloped. <laughs> me too. And
0: like yeah. I just
1: wanted to be deliberate. Yeah, no,
0: same. Yeah. Like I love enveloping people, right? Or, <laughs> or I love being held. I love holding people. I love the act of being close to somebody. And to me, that sounds a lot more, like, beautiful and penetrate. Well, I don't yeah, know. <laughs> <there's>... <laughs> penetrate. penetrate. No, there's something,
1: there's some, there's an element of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yes, it feels softer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it even feels more feminine. (laughs) Who knows? knows? (laughs) What are gender norms? Well, thank you so much, Alyssa, for coming on the podcast and talking to me today. I really enjoyed our conversation and hearing all of the things that you had to say. Me too, I, I really appreciated your time and
1: um, I'm excited to hear some of the other episodes that you've got coming up. Sounds exciting.
0: Me too. Um, really quickly, before you go, please tell um, people where they can find you online or follow your work. Um, any cool projects coming up? Uh, yes, yeah, so you can
1: find me uh, on Instagram at the real Alyssa Keegan. You can also check out my personal coaching website at thecauseeffectcoaching.com. You can also find me on Fresh Path New York's site at freshpathny.com and on Facebook at Alyssa Keegan. I have the amazing project of my life that I'm
0: working on. I love that. (laughs) I love that so much. Well, um, best of of luck on that project. It's always, (laughs) always happening. Always an adventure. Yes, adventure is out there. It's time for the question of the week. Question of the week. I need to find a better name for this segment and maybe, um, never do an off-the-cuff jingle again. Um, this week, I want to know, are you polyamorous? Would you ever try polyamory? Let me know either in the Spotify comments section or send me a voice memo at anchor.fm slash pod.